any of us survived our adolescence through music. Like you go from 14 to 24, there is not a 24 hour period that you are not reaching for music. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Health Careers with Dr. Martin, a podcast show that pulls back the curtain on what a career in health and wellness is really like. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Martin. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have a fantastic guest for you. He's fun, great stories, and I I love his deep voice as well. But he also has a very interesting career, which may be intriguing to you, especially if you love music. So today, we're going to talk with a Mr. Tim Ringgold. He is a board-certified musical therapist, a columnist, an author, a host of Reduce Your Stress podcast, which, by the way, is a podcast he started just over a year ago, specifically for healthcare care workers to reduce their stress when they're going to and from work. And so you might want to take a listen to that if you're kind of looking for something to help reduce your stress. It um, has some music that he created, and it's, uh, it's just very calm. So check that out if you're interested in that. And he's also the host of Stress Elimination Summit. He has provided music therapy to thousands of teens and adults to help them lower anxiety and reduce pain. Tim is also an award-winning international speaker, having shared the stage with some of the top music minds in music, the brain, and personal development, including Tony Robbins. So Tim was actually the first person to give a TEDx talk on music therapy in 2012. Check them out. There'll be some other links and information about Tim at the very end of the episode. Before we jump into this episode, however, please, if you are enjoying this podcast, you enjoy the episode, you enjoy past episodes, and you think this resource is valuable, then hit that like button, smash it, if you will. And that would help bring up awareness to this podcast. Even better, if there's a positive comment you can provide, please do so in whatever podcast directory you are using. Really be appreciated and it will help keep the momentum going here. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. Hey everybody, thanks for joining me. I have a great guest here. Welcome, Tim. How are you doing? It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Richard. All right, awesome. Tim, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Tim Ringgold. I'm a board-certified music therapist, specialist in pain and stress management, uh, living in Orange, California. There is actually a city called Orange. It's not just a county, ladies and gentlemen. So I'm in (laughs) Southern California in private practice. All right. So as a music therapist, what do you do to help people out in their healthcare-related activities? Gosh, music therapy is a, a modality that can be applied from cradle to grave all the way across the lifespan. So uh, music therapists can work with preterm infants as early as 32 weeks gestational age to the elderly and actively dying. My company focuses on working with adolescents and young adults struggling with mental health issues related to depression, anxiety, self-harm, addiction, and trauma. We also serve older population in memory care facilities who are struggling with dementia or Alzheimer's dementia. And those are kind of the two patient populations that we support on a weekly basis. And what are the usual steps to achieve a music therapy profession or degree? Yeah, it's not unlike how physical therapy, occupational therapy uh, used to be, where you'd get a you could get a bachelor's, master's, or a PhD, do a clinical internship, and then go into the field. Music therapy, you can still practice with a bachelor's, so it's a four year degree where you go a bachelor's in music therapy, or you can get a, an equivalency if you've already got a bachelor's in a related field. So you have a couple of options. So you can enter the workforce after completing a bachelor's and a 1,200-hour clinical internship, and then pass the national board certification exam. 
you can get an advanced degree as a master's uh, level practitioner or a PhD. And those two are typically for those who want to move into research or academia. Okay. Well, definitely a lot of hours. I didn't know it was a board certification. Yep. And then a hundred CEUs every five years to maintain your board certification. And if you don't maintain them, you can retake, you know, the exam every five years, but who would want to do that? (laughs) Not me. (laughs) What is the best part of your career? As a musician, getting to play for a living in a way that is in a like a healthy professional environment, unlike touring or playing bars or clubs and the gratitude quotient. So like you can see oftentimes in a music therapy session, you can see transformation take place in somebody's being in their wellness. And that is immensely gratifying to see it happen right in front of you because you know the work you're doing is making a difference with the person that you've really worked really hard to come to serve. That's awesome. And you see it actually there up close too. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to like you're on a concert stage and you got a lot of people. Yeah, and so all the different ways that a musician can interact and, uh, you know, when you release a CD or uh, an album or whatever we call it today, someone can be listening to your music and you have no idea that they're listening to your music. You don't know the impact you're having. With music therapy, they're with you face-to-face. And it's not so much that like you're performing for them and we'll talk a little bit about what music therapy session looks like. But it's just the fact that as a musician, you're not pouring out what you do into some black hole and hope that it works out somewhere for somebody. You are seeing the difference you make in real time. And that's just a great, great feeling. It sounds like it. But that being said, what's the least favorite part of your career? Well, the hardest part is that because there are so few music therapists, most people don't understand what it is. Mm. So there, it's not like when you say physical therapy, people either have been through it or observed it, they have a sense of, oh, that's uh, somebody takes exercise and points it at a problem. It's a really quick way to describe physical therapy, but music therapy, what's that? So they try to imagine what it might be and, and create their own shape on the pegboard of their brain, like what they think you're going to do in music therapy. And it's often underestimated the amount of training that we go through to become a music therapist and that anybody who's musical can be a music therapist and is can be doing music therapy. And that would be equivalent to saying anybody who can talk could be a psychologist. <laughs> we wouldn't say that, right? Or anybody who can exercise can be a physical therapist. It's like, no, no, no. And but you would you would be surprised. People think that just because you can play a musical instrument, you can practice music therapy. And it's just it's, there's more to it than meets the eye. So would you say that's one of the uh misconceptions out there about being a musical therapist? Or the big one? Yeah. So, and even just the, because people just don't know what it is. Yeah. Music therapist is this like, uh, oh, oh, I need something to be one. And it's like, yes, you have to go to school to be a music therapist. You don't need to go to school to help others, to inspire others, to move others uh, with music. But if you want to be actually practicing therapy, therapy is something that is done by clinical professionals, clinicians. Any therapy is done by a clinician or a professional. So if you want to use that phrase and you want to work in that setting and work in very fragile patient populations and uh, apply music as a treatment modality in very 
challenging settings, there's a process and it's long and it's actually pretty challenging. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to take a weekend certificate program online and now I can go do this thing. There's more to it than that. Well, I think you just went over my next question, which is what are some highlights of your profession that people should know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think the the thing that people should know about music therapy is that if you're a musician with a heart and you, you just really love people and you love helping people, the greatest part about being a music therapist is you literally just get to be yourself on the clock. It's an extraordinary feeling when you show up in service to others with the thing you love, which is music, and it's the thing they love because uh, I've never introduced anybody to music. So it's not like I've got this new protocol. It's going to hurt a little and it's going to, you're going to have side effects <laughs> and we're going to have to go through some rehab after. No, you don't say any of that. You're like, oh yeah, your friend music. Oh, I love music. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Here we go. It's not so foreign. Exactly. No, no, not no, at all. No. And as a therapist, it's very cool because let's say I'm working in a hospital setting and I come in to see you, you're a patient, you're struggling with pain and you're struggling with anxiety and the doctors can't seem to get it under control with medication and it's exacerbating your conditions that you're in admission for. I walk in the room, we're total strangers, but we have a mutual friend. It's music. When you get two people talking about music, I start to talk about my music and what it does for me. You start to talk about your music and what it does for you. We're talking about technically maybe two different musical genres, libraries, but we're talking about the same thing and it's doing the same thing for each of us. And we both know and love and trust our music. And so the music becomes this bridge of connection between you and me, where we both start talking about this friend that we have that we love so much. And, oh, music. Oh, yeah, you know music. Yeah, I love that guy. He's great. <laughs> oh, okay. We're going to be buds. And a music therapist leverages that mutual trust and connection. So we have this ability to get really close and really connected with strangers like that. And that is awesome. I love how you use music and identify it as a person, something that you can both relate to. And it's not just some industry, it's actually compartmentalized in this, this entity and the way that you've presented it. And it's it's tangible. Music's very personal. Yeah. If you think about, you know, any any of us survived our adolescence through music. Like you go from fourteen to twenty four. There there is not a twenty four hour period that you are not reaching for music to help you figure out who you are. It is very very personal to the human being, and so it's very powerful mostly positive. We have this great, very intimate relationship with it. And so as a music therapist, understanding that relationship and then kind of highlighting that to people, you just kind of ride the wave of that very easily. And it just creates an automatic inroad to connection, which is where therapy happens. Therapy happens in the connection between two human beings. That is so true. When you can really connect, that therapy becomes much more effective. That's when it happens. So tell me then, how do you actually help people? Like a typical day as a music therapist, what is it like? What's going on? It's great because depending on the type of person you want to help, your day as a music therapist might look very different. I'll give you an example in my private practice, what it looks like. We see 
teens and adults who are in residential treatment centers where they're there for 30, 60, 90 days working on their issues. So we will drive to the treatment facility and lead groups once a week for that particular facility. So we'll drive to that group. So let's say it's Monday morning, look at the calendar. It's like, okay, I got a 10 o'clock group here. Then I've got a one o'clock group here. I got a 2.15 here. I got a 3.30 over here. And I'm going to drive to these different facilities and I'm going to lead groups that are going to address very specific clinical issues that those patients are having. And uh, they're usually like a 50-minute group. And there's usually like six to eight people in the group. And we're going to leverage music in one of a couple of different ways. We might make it So we might improvise with rhythm instruments. We might listen to music that has certain themes that we want to address in the therapy. And we can really dig into those themes in a creative way through other people's music. We might use music to help them relax uh, because in mental health, one of the big challenges is that people's nervous system is stuck in a stress response. And so they don't know how to initiate the relaxation response in their own body. So using music, music automatically goes in and influences the autonomic nervous system. So knowing what music can do to heart rate, blood pressure, and the stress response, we can use music to help people enter a psychologically safe place in their body where they can start to relax. And then that turns off cravings, that initiates creativity, it initiates connection. All kinds of very powerful clinical outcomes can happen just from using music specifically as that tool. So we'll each week, we'll use music in a different way to address the clinical outcomes that that are relevant to that patient population. So it's not about the music. It's not about the performer or the therapist. It's about the client's diagnosis and treatment plan and clinical outcomes that they're trying to achieve. And we're going to use music specifically in a very specific way for that group for that reason. And then we'll go to a different facility and based on what the clinical goals are for that population, we're going to use music differently over there. So for my dementia patients, I'm going to be singing music from their childhood, from their teens and their 20s to them live. And I'm going to have them interacting with small rhythmic instruments to engage their body. And we're going to have them singing along and we're going to access that memory bank in their head. And it's going to look totally different in that session than it is going to look with the teens. And that's what's so fascinating about music therapy is you have broad options in front of you in terms of how you're going to utilize music because it really depends on who you're serving. So you really have to know what the patient you're taking care of. Are you ever in a situation where there's diverse patient populations in one group? No, you're going to be in a a treatment setting where you're either working one-on-one and you already know what their diagnosis is and there's a treatment plan and there are clinical outcomes. And if you're in a group, that group is already organized in some sort of clinical way where they might be stroke patients that are all doing rehab for gait training or for balance or something like that. They might be kids on the spectrum and and you're working on developing attention span and appropriate social behavior, but they're all going to be kids in a certain age bracket who are all struggling like on the spectrum in a similar kind of cohort, like so that you can apply this one treatment to this group. And they they all match each other in some way. Like that cohort right there is of the same age or they're at the same developmental level, or they're struggling with the same diagnosis or the same referring symptoms. It's like that. Tell me how this has been impactful for some of the patients you've taken care of. They can give you a story of it really was powerful. Jeez. When I worked in oncology in an inpatient setting in the hospital, 
I worked as a part of the palliative care team. And so the palliative care team would get referred to see patients who the attending docs couldn't treat their pain or their anxiety, or their nausea. They just, they didn't have access to or knowledge of the right pharmacological approach that worked. So they would bring in the specialist. We'd come in and then pain management team had knowledge and access to medication that the attendings didn't. And so they would apply the kind of the top shelf drugs to attempt to bring these symptoms under control. And when that didn't work, they referred me, the music therapist. Bring in the specialist. That was it. I would bring in the lefty, you know, (laughs) they'd call me in from the bullpen, you know, and I, I, my job was to see only the most symptomatic, most challenging, sickest patients in the hospital. That was where I was of use. And so this, I remember this one gal. No stress, by the way. No pressure. Right? Right? No pressure. (laughs) No. And I loved it because what music does to the brain and to the adrenals to and to your nervous system is is very global. Like it it does so many things at the same time to the human body. And that's the fascinating thing about music therapy is you start to understand the science of music as opposed to the art. And so you know how to apply music because you know what music will do to the brain and the body. And and you can leverage that in ways that, you know, a far pharmacological approach can't do at the same time. So for example, I had this lady who they could not address her pain. Couldn't and, and and pain and anxiety go hand in hand in the hospital because they just it's like a vicious circle. And so she's, you know, on a self-report, her pain and her anxiety are like seven, eight out of ten, pretty high. And I come in. And I bring my classical guitar and I give her a choice. You know, would you like, uh, we can improvise with some rhythm instruments. I can play some songs that you love. We can listen to some songs you love, or I can do what I call the relaxation vacation, where I play some slow tempo guitar and I walk you out of the present back in time to a place in your history where you felt safe and healthy and happy. Wow. sounds like I want that on my menu right now. Let me tell you, don't we all? And... <laughs> The science behind the relaxation vacation comes out of Harvard, a doctor named Herbert Benson, where this is some pretty deep stuff, but cells in the body, because the brain can't tell the difference when you walk the brain through your senses, it can't tell the difference between review, view, or preview. What I mean by that is that the part of the brain, let's say, Richard, you play tennis. I say, I want you to think of hitting a forehand, right? And hit a forehand. So I want you to imagine hitting a forehand, hitting a forehand, hitting a forehand. The same part of your brain lights up as when you actually hit the forehand. Now, if I say, Richard, I want you to think back to the tournament you played over the weekend. Remember that forehand winner you hit? I want you to think of that forehand winner. Think of that forehand winner. Same exact part of the brain lights up as when you actually hit the forehand winner in real time, right? So the human brain can be tricked into organizing and firing as if it's in different places in time. Knowing that is immensely powerful because when you walk people out of the stressful present into a safe, healthy past, their body reorganizes as the safe, healthy past. So their heart rate slows down, their blood pressure slows down, their respiratory rate stabilizes, their immune system fires up again. And so using slow tempo guitar, we can train them and train their nervous system to turn off the stress. And so this gal, I watched in real time as I did the relaxation, I could see the affect in her face change. I could see the tension in her shoulders drop. I could see her breathing slow down. And by the end of the session, she's a zero and she's a zero on pain and anxiety. And she's like, I don't know where it is, but it's gone. 
And what's beautiful is you'll watch their, you'll watch their body change in front of you. And then when they're in the uh, ICU and they're hooked up to heart rate monitors and blood pressure monitors and respiratory, you can see the numbers change. It's not just a subjective visual effect. It's actually happening on the monitor. So when we're working in the ICU, even with patients who are in a coma, we can slow down their heart rate, their blood pressure with slow tempo rhythm. And then we'll just write, we'll be at the nurse's station before the session, writing down the numbers. We'll go apply music therapy 15 to 30 minutes. We'll come back to write the numbers again. And they're two very, very different sets of numbers. And that is just so rewarding to be able to walk into such an intense environment and know that the tool that you have works. So is there a population where music therapy in general helps patients, has the most impact? Is there any particular disease or or, uh, patient populations? Yeah. So there's some really great places where music therapy is immensely effective, and they've actually been able to do some really good research around that. And one is in the NICU with preterm infants. Neonatal ICU. That's correct. Yep. And so uh, allowing neonates to be able to discharge from the NICU sooner than without music therapy. So stimulates neural development and wow. stimulates okay. uh, the suck, swallow, breathe reflex and allows them to feed orally and discharge sooner. So really fascinating research done in the NICU, really good uh, in neurological rehabilitation for strokes and for traumatic brain injuries. Great, great research done in that patient population, really powerful outcomes. Patients post-strokes or CVA doing gait training with physical therapy, when they co-treat with music therapy at the same time, they are able to respond and, and regain gait in like 55% of the time it would take if they didn't have music therapy. So like roughly half the time, like they get wow. their walking back faster when you introduce music into their therapy. So some really, really cool outcomes that make a big big, you know, statistical difference in, in that person's life. So those are two, two areas that, and then in kids with, uh, on the spectrum for autism, really effective when it's combined with ABA, there's just really, really great research. What's ABA? The for behavioral, uh, I'm, totally spacing on what ABA stands for, which is hilarious right now because <laughs> it would later. have been good to know that before I spat Stay it out. Stay tuned to the end of the episode and we'll let you know what the ABA is. That's for. right. I'm like scrambling for Google <laughs> over here like, oh, what does ABA and autism stand for? And I'm going to be like behavioral analysis and uh, I'll get it soon. But uh, really effective. The point is that music therapy is particularly effective with kids on the spectrum. Got it. You know, it's, it's funny. I worked in academics. I rarely saw music therapists. Now, of course, I've been out of uh, academics for five years, but it sounds like this could definitely be used for a lot of people in the hospital in particular. Absolutely. It's, you know, there's only about 8,000 music therapists nationwide. So the challenge is that it's such a small group that most people haven't met one or seen one. Yeah. Uh, and it just, you know, their exposure hasn't been there compared to like, there's 185,000 speech therapists out there. So it's like, oh, okay, that's a big <laughs> difference, you know? And ABA, ladies and gentlemen, is applied behavior analysis. Got it. Th- thank right. you, Google. Thank you, Google. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tim, what would you say is the work-life balance, you know, quality in this kind of career? Because you can work in so many different settings and you have a lot of freedom and flexibility in, in music therapy, the biggest challenge for music therapists is it. most people who get into helping professions get into it because of their passion for helping others and they forget about the person in the mirror. And it's a cultural thing. The person in the mirror needs help too. The person in the mirror being self-care. 
And so the work-life balance, what tends to happen is people will feel this cultural drive to like give all they have to their patients and give, 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 give. And then they don't set a boundary for the person in the mirror. And I'm using that phrase specifically because when we say ourself, something about that word is like, there's something in our language about ourself, like selfish, self-centered. So when I tell people who are like caregivers and their loved one dies, I'm like, you're still a caregiver. You're just now caring for the person in the mirror. And they think differently. As opposed to saying you're taking care of yourself as yes. well. So one of the big challenges in music therapy is taking time for the person in the mirror and whatever that looks like for them. How do you refuel? Because you are a burning fuel, whether it's physical, emotional, social, spiritual fuel, you're burning fuel during your day. And so what do you do to refuel? It's not an endless supply. And if you don't take time to refuel, then you burn out and it's predictable. And it's an issue in my field. It's an issue in most helping professions. Burnout is real. And they don't, I don't feel that the music therapy field does enough in their training to train this work-life balance understanding early on. Um, academia can be, you know, guilty of this and healthcare can be totally guilty of this, of kind of burning through their students and burning through their professionals in an attempt to serve their patients. Changing the direction a little bit, the outlook of this profession, because we don't want to get old dark. <laughs> How do most people get into this profession in the first place? It's interesting. There's so many re-entry students in re-entry? music therapy. Yeah. They're students who got a degree in one area and have a musical background and then weren't finding fulfillment in whatever that field was that they had gotten their primary degree in and then discovered music therapy somewhere along the way and came back to school to either get a second bachelor's or a master's or an equivalency in music therapy because they realized that's the thing. That's the thing where I can just be myself. So I thought I was an unusual student as at 32 going back to school for a degree in music therapy. And in my degree program, at least half of our students were re-entry students. So it's a little unusual. It's a little different than a lot of fields where people, because they just don't know, like how many high school juniors who have been all state vocalists or orchestral or band members know music therapy is an option in their career. They just don't know. So they, it's not anybody's fault. It's just that for every music program out there, you know, there's thousands of music programs and there's less than a hundred music therapy programs. So it's just, it's an unusual shape on the pegboard. They'll most likely find out about it because they either had a personal experience with it or they have a family member or a friend who had a personal experience with it. And somehow it put music therapy on the landscape for them. And so we, we come to the field through many different doors. How musically gifted do you need to be to be a musical therapist? Well, in order to graduate with a degree in music therapy, you have to be proficient in piano, guitar, and voice. You don't have to start out proficient in those, but in order to graduate, you're going to be studying all three because you use your voice and then you use an accompanying instrument, which is either a piano or a guitar, and these days even a ukulele. So you need to come in as a musician, as someone who's already been studying music, studying a musical instrument, because music is your tool. So you have to be accomplished and practiced at some level to even pass the audition to you know, declare yourself a music therapy major and enter the program, you have to have some level of proficiency on some instrument to begin with. 
what is the future outlook like for musical therapists that you can kind of guess at? Music therapy can take a couple of different turns where they're poised right now as a field because there's a conversation about master's level entry and following other therapy professions and moving in that direction. However, a master's level entry is something that will kind of cut the number of people who become music therapists immediately because of the economic impact of what it takes. It's almost like a class issue. Like the number of people who can afford to come into the field as a master's trained therapist versus a bachelor's trained. You cut the field immediately when you when you insert a master's degree in terms of just right away. And since the numbers are already small to begin with, it's not like we have already a critical mass of music therapists out in the industry. So I see that we're kind of at a crossroads right now. The good news for music therapy is that every year, the research that's being done in neuroscience is validating the research that's being done in music therapy because for you know only for the last 20 years or so have we been able to really videotape the brain in action, so to speak. And since that time, what neuroscience has seen on film is the brain on music is quite unique. And so it's an immensely effective tool for brain development and brain rehabilitation. So that is very encouraging because one of the things that's lagged is like in the Western medicine world of evidence-based quantitative research, (laughs) Mm -hmm. music is subjective. Mm. And so it's really hard to standardize music. So like if I try to play Frank Sinatra to you, it's not going to have the same effect as it's going to have to me because of our preferences. So there's some challenges around the, you know, being able to just prescribe music as this broad spectrum thing. Like if you give 10 people aspirin, you know, versus 10 people Frank Sinatra, it's not, it's not standardized like that. So there's some challenges for the field, but because of the research that's being done right now, every year music therapy is being more and more welcomed into hospital settings, into clinical settings as an evidence-based practice. Are there any type of students that best fit and flourish in this career? Yeah, 100%. Anybody who is already studying music and psychology should just go right into music therapy because it's a perfect blend because there's somebody who is thinking about helping others and they have this musical skill set that took thousands of hours to get into their fingers or into their throat as a vocalist. And it's a great great combination of the two. A lot of lot of people will be a music major and a sociology minor, or a music major and a psych minor, or a psych major and a music minor, or a sociology major and a music minor. And if they're in any of those kind of <laughs> scenarios, they should go for music therapy because you really get to put the two in a blender. Now, you didn't follow that trajectory at all. How did you get into... I mean, what were you thinking about when you were in high school? What were you thinking about doing? I was an all-state bassist vocalist in high school. I was a really good singer and I wanted to be a music major. But at the time, it was just music performance or music education, music composition were the only options. So I didn't I didn't necessarily want to sing opera or musical theater as a career. And I didn't necessarily want to teach lessons or music class. So I struggled. I kind of wandered the desert, trying out this major, trying out that major. I went to seven different schools. After high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have eight different uh, universities on my transcript. (laughs) Yeah, man. I was really searching. I mean, literally and figuratively, I was searching. Yeah, physically (laughs) searching. Like, man, is this it? No, that's not it. Is this it? And then I... I was scrolling through an index of majors at a school from A to Z. 
to see what would inspire me at this school. Uh, I'm an athlete and an artist. So for a time I was working in physical therapy, but I was like, ah, it's just tissue. It doesn't touch the mood or the soul. I need something that goes deeper. And I bumped into music therapy myself. I saw it as a major and I was like, what is that? And I clicked on it and it was two paragraphs, type of music, type of work a music therapist does and the type of person a music therapist is. And for me, it read like my dream job and my autobiography. And I thought I can get a degree in being myself. And so my mantra has been, because you don't work music, you play it. I haven't worked a day since I graduated. And that's why I look so good. Well, you do actually. Thanks for <laughs> highlighting that. I was going to say something, <laughs> but you beat me to the punch. Well, I, you know, let me tell you, when you get into your middle age years, you see your friends age at different speeds. Yeah. And a lot of it is because of what they're doing 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And one of my, I have, I'm taking private lessons for something the other day. And I told the guy I'm about to turn 49 next week. And he just said, what? He goes, congratulations. You found the fountain of youth. And I said, it's because I don't work for a living. And I genuinely believe that, right? Because you don't hit the work button when you start music. It's the play button. I don't work guitar. I play guitar. I mean, play is immensely restorative. So anybody who likes to play, this is a good field for you. You did mention that you started a little bit later in life in this career. Mm -hmm. During those years, you were all in school or were you also working? And I was trying to make it as a musician, as a rock star. I call it a mock star. It's a rock star who hasn't made it yet. And I had like a Clark Kent day job working in like voice and data communications. Awful. Had no interest in it, but paid the bills and supported my dream of making it and was, you know, recording records and releasing albums because the... I didn't know there was this other career in music where I could be in healthcare because I really loved the idea of being in healthcare. I, as a kid, I thought I was going to be a doctor. I, when I got into PT, I had to get my checks direct deposited because I couldn't believe they were paying me for it. But after a while, PT is so protocol focused. I just got bored. Like the creativity in me just needed something that was more diverse in its application. And then when I discovered music therapy, I was, that was my life changed the day I read that description. I mean, I was just <laughs> struggling, trying to have two careers, one at day, one at night. And I basically saw a way, you know, that I could make a living, you know, raise a family, be home, not be on the road and, and be musical on a weekly basis. So Tim, is there anything that you would have done differently reflecting back then on all these years? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've thought a lot about that, particularly because I came to music therapy late. And for me, Actually, I'm okay with the way it went because at this stage in my life, I know that if I had found music therapy at 18, I probably would have blown it, to be honest with you. I wasn't mature enough emotionally. I was someone who was struggling with addiction. I was somebody who went through some really rough trauma in my early 20s. And I might share that story a little later because it kind of was a, an initial catalyst to this, but I don't think I was ready at that stage to handle the course load, the compassion and being responsible to another human being, I was way too self-centered at that stage of my life. I think it's a great case in point that you don't always have to find yourself early on. Oh man. I remember I, I, I'm 19, I'm drinking, I'm smoking, I'm chasing women and I'm crashing. And I remember I met with a mentor and he said, Tim, you're 19. You're not supposed to have it figured out yet. And I said, well, you might want to let the educational system and the society know that because every signal that's being sent to me is I'm supposed to have figured this out. I was supposed to declare my major and, and I'm, I'm behind. And he's like, behind what? 
<laughs> I'm behind the expectations of me and my family and my culture. And he's like, if you can forget all that, you'll be fine. And that was a, I'll never forget it, Father Paul Holland. I'll never forget that conversation. You're not supposed to have it figured out yet. And I just thought he was crazy. <laughs> but really, it was the expectations being put on me was crazy making. Great story. Thanks for sharing, Tim. Let's go to some quick questions with quick answers. I call it right. rapid fire questions. You ready? I'm ready. All right. What sport were you good at when you were in school? Soccer. In the last one month, what song do you, do you remember singing along to? Mm. Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra. Your least favorite season of the year? In Southern California, it's Labor Day to Halloween. It's the hottest time of the year here. So it is just like hot. And and it's like I grew up in Connecticut where it was cooling off by then. And here it's just like, ha ha, we're just getting started. <laughs> uh, on a scale of one to 10, how strict were your parents? Hmm. I would say uh, in comparison to like my next door neighbors, maybe like seven. What would you consider the most important inventions during your lifetime? Whoa. The microchip got to be the game changer in my lifetime. Place you most want to travel, especially with all these lockdowns and oh such. Oh my God. So many places I want to go. But I can tell you that there is an overwater bungalow in Bora Bora, Tahiti with mm. my name on it. Let's just say. I, did, I think I did see that in advertisement. Tim, come here. <laughs> We're waiting. <laughs> and finally, what advice would you give your child or grandchild or children on their wedding day? It's your marriage. Don't inherit anybody else's expectations or definition for what marriage should look like. Create your own. Good words of advice, probably challenging to follow. Mm. but hence why they get advice. That's right. Tim, thanks a lot, man. That's awesome. Listen, where can listeners go to reach you and learn more about you? If you're on Instagram, I'm at Tim Ringgold. And if you're on the internet, on the interwebs, you can just go to timringgold.com. So Tim, thanks a lot for joining me, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it. All right, everybody. That's our show today. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about today's guests or other past guests, just check out my website, healthcareerswithdrmar.com or hcwithdrmar.com. Of course, if you like what you heard on this podcast, then please go to my website, add your name and email to my email list. That way you can get the latest announcements and news as they arise. You can also find me on Instagram at drrichardmarn. That's Dr. Richard Marn. Thank you so much for listening and catch you on the next episode.